Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Welcome to BU Law with host David Yaggs. Hello, everyone. I'm David Yaz, and thank you, Gary Tangway. Always nice to hear your lovely baritone voice begin the podcast. This is the Boston University School of Law podcast. I'm David Yaz. Uh, some of you may know me. I spent 15 years as the publisher of Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. Right now, my day job is a vice president at Bernstein Global Wealth Management. But perhaps most importantly, as I like to say, I'm a proud alum of the law school class of 1993. So we have an interesting topic today and a tremendous, dare I say, legendary teacher and professor here with us on the air, um, despite the fact that he remains uh, among the, the youngest scholars in the country. And if that isn't a teaser, I don't know what is. But here's the topic. Back in June of 2012, the Administrative Conference of the United States approved non-binding so-called midnight rules guidelines. Now, if you don't know what those are, they are the pushing through of rules by a president in the last few months of their administration. And today we'll spotlight midnight regulations, the new guidelines, and the potential impact on current and future administrations. And as promised, I have on the line here Professor Jack Bierman, who's an administrative law scholar specializing in separation of powers and related issues. At the law school, Professor Bierman currently teaches administrative law, civil rights litigation, introduction to American law for foreign LLM students, and local government law. Jack served as a consultant for the Administrative Conference of the United States, where he conducted research on midnight rules. Welcome, Professor Bierman. How are you doing? Okay, David. How are you doing? doing? Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you as well. So so I, I certainly, I didn't have the pleasure of being in any of your classes, Professor Bierman. I certainly have fond memories of you at the law school. And uh, for those that don't know, uh, let's call a spade a spade here. Professor Bierman was like the cool law professor, okay? The guy, the, the guitar playing, like youthful, um, you know, civil rights, you know, a real fighter of a scholar. And you stop me anytime I, I, I stray from the truth here, Professor Bierman. Well, it's, I think a little got... tu- it's a little tough to stay one of the younger professors for, <laughs> for almost 30 years, which is about how long I've been there now. I think I'm starting my 29th year on the faculty, so. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, nice to hear someone say that. Anyway, well, well, time flies. Time flies, and I think you know, always, always youthful in spirit. And uh, Professor Bierman is just That's true. is um, an amazing authority. He's taught in Israel. He's taught in China, and now an expert on these so-called midnight rules. And it's an interesting concept. That, you know, Professor Bierman. It reminds me of uh, locally when a, a governor is on his way out the door, and he he appoints all kind of judges to the bench because he wants to. Uh, Get that final shot in before he departs, and but we're talking about on the on the presidential level, of course. Give us an overview of these midnight rules. Well, it's inter- interesting that you mentioned the appointment of judges because, of course, the first episode in our history on this issue was back when John Adams was leaving the presidency, and he appointed a bunch of midnight judges, mm. which led to the litigation in Marbury versus Madison. Mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of midnight rules at the federal government level, attention really got focused on this. And the Carter after the Carter administration, because I think Jimmy Carter expected to be a two-term president, and when he lost the election in November, they got the uh, all of the agencies working overtime to finish as much of the uh, long-term actions that they had planned to carry out in the second term. And so, basically, uh, they cranked out so many regulations that the Federal Register had trouble keeping up with them, and he set a record for the number of pages 
in the Federal Register in that last quarter of his administration. And since that happened, there's been some scholarly attention and some attention in the media to this phenomenon of administrations really pumping up the volume of, of regulations at the very end of their terms. And it's gotten a lot of real, neg- real negative press. It's gotten some attention in Congress. Usually the Democrats are upset when it's a Republican leaving office, and then the Republicans are upset when it's a Democrat leaving office. <laughs> Naturally. Yeah. seems to be a pretty universal phenomenon among presidents. So the, the earlier this summer, the Administrative Conference of the U.S., uh, they approved these guidelines. But how, how did they how – did, what was the impetus? How did they start studying this? Well, the Administrative Conference is a nonpartisan federal agency uh, with the mission of improving the administrative process. And so – uh, you know, other scholars and myself have published several articles about this. It's gotten in the press. So they look for issues that they think they could uh, do some uh, work on. And so they chose this issue. And they put out last May, they put out a request for proposals from people to be the consultant to write their report on it, which is how they how that op- that uh, agency operates. So I put in a, requ- uh, a response to the proposal, and I was awarded the contract. Mm-hmm. So I started working on this uh, a year ago, May. Okay. And tell us... Tell us what happened. Tell us what your expectation was going in, and then how you ultimately arrived at a recommendation. I was, I would say, on the side of the hawks on midnight uh, rulemaking. Mm-hmm. That is, there were a few of us that were sort of identified as big critics of it. And the interesting thing is, it's a pretty uh, bipartisan group of people. Right. One of the biggest critic, critics of midnight rulemaking was a woman named Susan Dudley at GW, George Washington University now, who served in the Bush administration and really was the point person on trying to stop that administration from um, engaging in midnight rulemaking. And she and I were sort of identified as the real hawks on the issue. Mm -hmm. But when you start really looking closely at the issue, the appearance turns out to be much worse than the reality. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the conclusion that we all came to. And it was a pretty collaborative um, process uh, with people from the administrative conference and some outsiders, because the conference itself actually has some government officials and some non-government officials involved in the whole process of formulating and improving their recommendations. So we all sort of came to this consensus that there were certain things that needed to be reformed, but it wasn't it, it wasn't up there on the top 10 uh, terrible things that happened in Washington. And, and truly, you say it was a bipartisan, so did you try to go at it with a, with a truly unbiased eye? In other words, if you're going to work towards regulations that will be in place, hopefully for, for some time, they will be fair for either party. You don't want it to become, you don't want the rules themselves to be debated in each political cycle. Am I well, right about that? Yeah, I mean, the thing is that uh, it would be very difficult to be partisan on this issue without having it be very temporary. Because, right. you know, just it's, you know, in, in our history, if you look at the transitions, uh, one party hasn't really dominated the presidency. So, um, I mean, we had a long time where the Democrats dominated Congress. That's not really true anymore. So really, what you're trying to do is you're trying to come up with some recommendations that make sense to everybody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that means some people are uh, unhappy with things, you know, moderately unhappy, but from both sides of the political spectrum. So we really, I had, I mean, the two, the two people that helped me the most on this project both served in uh, administrations, one for President uh, Clinton and the other for President George W. Bush. So I felt pretty good when those both of those people were enthusiastic about the the uh, the project and the proposals. I thought I had done a good job of of doing something that wasn't partisan that was just going to design to make the process better. So tell me, when President Obama took office, he had to deal with some decisions made by President Bush. But I'm unclear. Clear this up for me because it, was it President Bush's midnight regulations, the actual rules he had put in, or are we talking about decisions by 
President Bush that might be categorized as midnight uh, decisions or what what have you? Well, just, just like every president, uh, you know, for a long time, uh, when there's a change in party, there were a lot of last-minute rulemakings done in the George W. Bush administration that President Obama had to deal with when he came into office. Mm-hmm. Many of those rules had actually not yet gone into effect because there's normally a 60-day waiting period. So you have rules that are published on the morning of the inauguration that won't come into effect until uh, you know March of the year that the president has taken office. And so just like every president, um, the last several presidents before him, President Obama wanted to look over those rules to make sure that they were uh, of, of high quality because sometimes there's a, a concern that they're rushed through and also to make sure that they weren't you know, inconsistent with his policies, because the last thing you want to do as president is come into office and then have your administration enforcing rules that you don't agree with, that are inconsistent with your policies. So he put a freeze on the regulations that had been promulgated at the end of the Bush administration to give his administration a chance to review them. That's exactly what George W. Bush did when Bill Clinton left office, and it's exactly what Ronald Reagan did when Jimmy Carter left office. It's not a new thing. Uh, these freezes are uh, have become basically... Uh, uh, an established part of presidential transitions. Well, let, let's let's back up a minute, Professor Bierman, and and talk about what exactly is um, troubling when it comes to these type of decisions. Because in some sense, although you may be making decisions, you know, in the eleventh hour when you are a lame duck, and but but you're still the president. So, in other words, it. Are they decisions that – what is wrong philosophically with a leader wanting to make decisions while he is still in power? What taints that simply because he is on the way out the door? Well, you know, let's, let's just take an example from the Clinton administration. So uh, I think it was in the last week of his administration, uh, Bill Clinton's Environmental Protection Agency promulgated a very strong rule about uh, uh, the uh, level of arsenic allowed in drinking water. Mm-hmm. And obviously, President Clinton's uh, administration was much more concerned about environmental issues than than people expected George W. Bush's administrations to be. So here you have, it's after the election. So the American people have already spoken, and they've decided, we want a Republican. And as part of that package, you assume that Republicans are running on a different sort of regulatory platform. Mm-hmm. So it seems somewhat illegitimate. I mean, it's only because of the mechanics of transition that you can't, have the new administration take over the day after the election. You need a little time to, uh, you know, to coordinate the transition. But it seems like uh, most, I think most people agree that once the uh, electorate has spoken, once the people have spoken and have chosen a president that has a different philosophy, that really the, the, the outgoing president ought to just take care that things, you know, nothing falls uh, by the wayside, but shouldn't be pushing any major new initiatives. Mm-hmm. And in every transition, there's a lot of bad press and a lot of bad feeling among the people in the party that just got elected saying, you know, these outgoing people shouldn't be doing much. They, you know, there's a tradition in Europe of the caretaker government and, uh, you know, once an election is called in Europe. And there's a similar feeling here that some people think that the outgoing administration shouldn't do anything really new. The Bush administration, George W. Bush's administration, really at the last minute promulgated a, a, a rule that would have changed the way that all occupational safety rules were analyzed, and it would have made it much more difficult for the Department of Labor to put in place any new occupational safety rules. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Democrats cried foul on that one, saying that's something that after the election, nobody should be doing something like that. They should wait for the new president to take over and 
uh, and go forward with the new president's program based on what the people have chosen. So, so President Bush was in favor of, of arsenic in people's water, right? Like, well, in fact, no, he, he it, wanted more arsenic in the water. No, right? that wasn't. <laughs> there was actually a very legitimate concern. Yeah. And part of the process for formulating these reports is you speak to uh, government officials that were involved in the process. So I actually spoke to the, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency at the time of the transition. And the problem with the arsenic rule to the incoming administration was that it was going to put a very high number of municipal water supplies in the western United States out of compliance with the rules. And it was going to cost many billions of dollars to bring them into compliance. Mm. And so that's a legitimate concern. And so, you know, it's not only is it a legitimate concern, but it's something that was done at the last minute. And you have to ask yourself, did these people have an adequate opportunity to participate in the rulemaking, you know, in terms of democracy? And was the rule adequately considered or was it rushed through? So the incoming administration did what, uh, you know, they did, took a sensible approach, which is they said, okay, we're going to review this rule. And they actually got an independent team of scientists from the National Academy of Sciences to um, uh, review it for them. And mm-hmm. they said that, you know, what, what their, if their report says the rule is a, uh, a, a good rule, we're going to keep it in place. And that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. So it was just a question of reviewing it. It, it caused an outcry when they did it. You know, because it was people were afraid that the Bush administration was going to be uh, very uh, tough on, uh, you know, trying to get rid of a lot of environmental protections. But, but the, uh, when all all was said and done, it was better, I think, that they reviewed it than then they didn't, because I think it made a lot of people feel uncomfortable that a president on the way out the door would put in a major initiative mm-hmm. at the last moment. Let me ask you when we're talking with Professor Jack Bierman here. Let me ask you one more question before we take a, a break, Jack, and and that's um. We talked about judicial appointments briefly. Did your study, your analysis, cover that topic? In my study did not cover that topic. There actually has been a lot of work on last-minute appointments. Now, judicial appointments aren't really a problem because the Senate would never confirm them sure. under normal circumstances. You know, with the filibuster possibility, it's very difficult to get to ram through a judicial appointment. Hmm. But there are, there is a great deal of personnel action that happens at the end of administrations. They hire a lot of new people. They move people from political appointed jobs to civil service protected jobs, and that can be a real problem also. And, uh, you know, my report touched on that, but we weren't really focused. We were really focused much more on uh, on policy issues than on personnel issues. At, here in Massachusetts, it became an issue in, and I'm going to forget the year, but it was when, I suppose it was when Clinton was going out of office. That, w- that would have been when Janet Reno was, was headed out of office at well. If I'm, you can mistake me if I'm, wrong, if I'm wrong, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. In Massachusetts, you might remember there were three lawyers being disciplined for this elaborate scheme in which they duped a law clerk into revealing information about a judge and as in connection with the Demula Supermarkets litigation, which was this monstrous litigation. And they were later disbarred, but but at the time the question was whether or not they were subject to uh, prosec- criminal prosecution on the federal level because they had secretly tape-recorded conversations with this clerk. At the 11th hour before headed out of office, J- Janet Reno decided not to prosecute, and I couldn't explain what political winds prompted her to do that, but that was her little farewell. And, uh, uh, you know, with uh, stronger midnight re- anti-midnight regulations, it might have turned out differently. I don't know. Is that, is that, is that, a, is that uh, part of what you studied as well or no? You know, I, I mean, we did look at some you know, sort of more informal matters like that, but the problem is that there are so many things that happen every day in the government. And most of them are fleeting. They don't really have long-term. Uh, they don't really have long-term consequences. Right. And so, sure, maybe the world would be a better place if those people would have been subject to federal prosecution for what they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm pretty familiar with that case, actually. But, okay. but, um, 
uh, it, that's not going to have major impacts. And part of the issue, one of the reasons that we decided that midnight rulemaking was not as bad as the as its image is because there are hundreds of tasks that need to get done every week in right. the federal government. You know, there are all kinds of decisions that have to be made. Who to prosecute, who not to prosecute is one of them. Or there are all kinds of reporting issues that have to be done and certification issues that have to be done. So any effort to shut that whole process down, let's say we decide, okay, after the election, we're just going to shut everything down. That would mean that there'd be an enormous pile of work for the incoming administration when they took office. And that's not a good thing either. Mm -hmm. So you have to make a balance between keeping things going so that the new administration isn't overloaded, but making sure that things aren't, you know, sort of rushed through and make major, with the outgoing administration making major efforts to extend the influence of their policies beyond, you know, sort of when it's legitimate based on the fact that the electorate has spoken and chosen a different direction. So let's take a quick break here. Thanks for joining us so far on the BU School of Law podcast. And when we return, we will talk more with Professor Jack Bierman. Located in Boston and steeped in 139 years of a rich tradition, BU Law is ranked number one in the nation for best professors and number eight for best classroom experience, according to the Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872, and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome to the BU School of Law podcast. I, once again, am your host, David Yaz. We are lucky to be joined this morning by Professor Jack Bierman, who's a professor at the law school, of course, and we're discussing so-called midnight regulations, which has become an area of expertise since Professor Bierman served in a capacity to come up with a rule to prevent, in some fair way, these decisions made at the end of a presidential term. Before we get right back to the topic, Jack, since it's it's on people's minds now and since civil rights has always been such a part of what you do, I'm curious to your thoughts on the this, this Chick-fil-A controversy. And we'll only spend a minute on it, but as I'm sure many of our listeners, if not all of our listeners, know that the, the owner of Chick-fil-A, Dan Cathy, came out and, and sort of said that he it's important to him to take a stand against gay marriage. He feels it's against the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. There was a big uproar. Mayor Menino here in Boston said Chick-fil-A is not welcome here because they don't represent our values. And it's a real, it's, it's, it's taken on maybe too big of a life of its own, but it, it, to me it is an interesting debate on business rights versus, you know, First Amendment rights and such. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well, I mean, I think it's a pretty simple First Amendment violation if a city actually said no Chick-fil-A in our city because of your, you know, the values that you've expressed. Mm-hmm. That would be, you know, completely unconstitutional to, to deny someone a business license or a building permit or anything like that based on the political views of the company. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but I think Mayor Menino also has his own First Amendment rights. So, you know, it's insofar as he wants to speak out and give his opinion, and that's the beautiful thing about America is that no one's going to punish you for giving your opinion. And that's the point. He, he, he can speak out as a sort of a private citizen, even as a government official, you know, giving his view. But if he takes any action against them based on their, their you know, religious or political views, he would have himself in some First Amendment hot water. And I think, you know, the fact that you have you know, um, disputing groups, some people going to show their support for Chick-fil-A and going in and, you know, and uh, and shopping there, 
and then other people white, you know, calling for a boycott again. That's you know that's a, a, a beautiful thing, and I think you know the government needs to stay neutral in terms of whose side to take. They can't deny the uh, parade permit to the uh, people in favor of Chick Fil A, and then grant the parade permit mm-hmm. in favor of the people you know who are against uh, Chick Fil A. But you know again, the mayor has the right to speak out. He just can't take any official action against them. What if the thoughts of said business owner were so offensively against the Constitution? For example, the business owner said, "I." I wish I didn't have to employ minorities because, in my opinion, this country should be um, should not let in immigrants. We we I don't care for minorities. Such um, distasteful anti-constitution concepts. Would that make it any different? You know, I'm afraid the answer to that is probably uh, that the government can't really do anything about it officially. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was a uh, a long time ago at, at the law school we had a forum on whether public access cable could keep the Ku Klux Klan off the public access, mm. right? They had a public access show and people were offended by it. Sure. But I think, you know, that's, again, that's, you have a free country, a free society, people are going to be offended. I mean, do we want to have a situation like what's going on in Russia where uh, a rock band uh, does some sort of outrageous uh, um, performance mm. that offends a lot of people? You know, in the relig- they, took, they did it in a church and they offended their religion. Do you... you where do you want to see people like that go to jail for seven years? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I could see them getting in trouble for disorderly conduct and trespassing, but that's no seven-year sentence. Mm-hmm. But when you don't have a free country, that's what happens. And I think, you know, there New Hampshire's motto, live free or die, I'm not sure I want to die over it, but I think that it's a better society when you have even offensive views being expressed because they can always be countered by other people's views. Well, thank you. Uh, for I don't you. want the government to have the power to decide which views are offensive and which are not. It, it seems that you agree with uh, The Daily Show's John Stewart, who says, you know, I don't know what amendment covers this topic, but I think it's in the top one. <laughs> anyway, that is pretty clear cut. So right. let's return to midnight regulation. So we we have sort of buried the lead here in that we haven't yet revealed what you what you came up with in studying this issue and how you create a rule to prevent so-called midnight decisions by presidents right. and how you strike that balance. So tell us about that. Well, let me go back for one. We haven't really talked about um, one of the problems with midnight rulemaking, which I think was a, a central problem that led a lot of people to be opposed to it. And one of the, the central issue is that when you have midnight rulemaking, the outgoing administration has the opportunity to make major policy decisions without a lot of outside input, because they can wait until after the election, right? So if you have a, uh, an important decision that an administration makes and they're up for re-election or their party's up for re-election, the electorate can vote on whether they like that. But if they wait till right after the election to start ramming things through, then, then it sort of takes away the people's voice. And so that was one of the big concerns. So when we started studying the problem, what we noticed, though, was that almost all of the rules that get promulgated in the last quarter of an administration, they were pending for several months, if not years beforehand, because the whole rulemaking process takes so long. So when we, um, when we made our recommendations to the outgoing administration, they really were focused on the openness and uh, timing of the process. So basically, we came up with, a set of recommendations which boil down to their essentials are don't rush and make sure everything's out in the open long before the election. And so basically, you know, encouraging all outgoing administrations to go through the rulemaking process in its normal, deliberate pace. Don't, uh, don't try to rush things through. Don't skip any steps. Don't cut corners. Make sure that all rules are adequately uh, aired for public input and also that they're all adequately considered to make sure they're, you know, the high expected quality of a federal agency. 
That was one set of uh, recommendations. The other set of recommendations was to start the rulemaking process long enough before the election so that everybody knows what's coming before the election. And when the uh, when the timing gets to the point where there's not going to be enough time to do that, then leave your your proposals as proposals for the new administration rather than as final rules so that the new newly elected administration can make the final decision on whether to change uh, directions or move in the direction that the administration was taking. So those were the two sets of recommendations to the outgoing administration. Mm-hmm. And what, I mean, what do you see in the future for this? Well, you know, in the, um, the George W. Bush administration attempted to follow basically what I just set out. Mm-hmm. They actually promulgated a, a, a directive sometime in the uh, early summer or late spring uh, of their last year in office, imposing deadlines that basically would have meant there would have been no midnight rulemaking in the Bush administration, in the outgoing administration. They would have been finished by November 1st with everything. Mm-hmm. And of course, the agencies couldn't really do it. There was just too much work to do. And so then they started making exceptions. And they had, they had standards for allowing the exceptions to be made. But one of the exceptions was a presidential priority. And so then all of these agency heads were rushing to the president to get the president to endorse what they wanted to do as presidential priorities and the whole the system I wouldn't say completely broke down but it really it didn't do a lot to prevent midnight rulemaking it did some there were more rules in the first half of the Bush administration's last year than in the second half which hadn't been true in prior transitions but they still had a pretty good volume of midnight rulemaking mm-hmm. so then we also made recommendations uh directed at incoming administrations mm-hmm. and the the basically for incoming administrations there's been criticism what happens typically is the, and this started with President Reagan, uh, is that the day they take office, they issue a directive saying, no new rules until we have a chance to review them, don't promulgate any more rules, and all rules that have already been promulgated but haven't gone into effect are hereby suspended. And we're going to take a look at these rules and determine whether we want to let them go into effect. And then 95% of those rules go into effect without any further action. That's basically what's always happened. We uh, made recommendations uh to the incoming administration to open up that process to public scrutiny. That is to not, that, that, that is what we said was allow the public to comment on whether rules should be suspended or not. Don't just mm. do it without the normal sort of notice and comment that you give people. Right. And, you know, if you, if it's, if the deadline is imminent, then okay, go ahead and freeze it, but then also open it up to notice and comment. In other words, pu- conduct this review out in the open rather than behind closed doors where people might not know what uh, what's going on and what your considerations are. Right. So, and we also made a recommend, an important recommendation to Congress, which is this process that President Reagan started, which again, as I said, has been carried through by every administration since then when the parties change. There's a question about whether it's legal to actually do that freeze. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in the Administrative Procedure Act that allows a rule to be frozen uh, once it's been promulgated, and especially to do it without giving any possibility of notice and comment. So we recommend to Congress, actually, that they pass a statute authorizing this to occur at transitions, because we think we came to the conclusion that it was a good process, for the reasons I said earlier, that it's good to have the new administration take a look at what was done at the last minute to make sure that it's good policy and that it was you know, not rushed through in a way that um, uh, might lead to mistakes. So we recommended to Congress that they actually authorize this. So and 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 do it in a way you know authorize it in a way which would require an open process 
so that the whole procedure that we would get rid of the doubts about the legality and um, you know and and make sure that it was an open public above board process. Right. Well, very good, Professor Beerman. There's so much more to cover on this topic, but the the hour is late here on the podcast, so I'm going to encourage those that want to follow up with you to do so. And if if folks want to ask you about any of your work, including the work on 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 this effort with midnight regulations, how can they get in touch with you? Well, they can always find me at uh, at the law school, and my email address, which is on the law school's website, is just my last name at bu.edu, and it's b e e r m a n n. Two E's and two N's, and I got to keep the second N because of my, otherwise my grandfather uh, would have been very upset at me. Well, so it's two E's and two N's at bu. Beerman with two E's and two N's at bu. Edu. Yes, and in the world of email, that misspelling can have tragic consequences. So remember, folks, two N's, two N's on the end of, of Beerman. <laughs> Please respect the family. Very good, uh, Jack. Uh, terrific talk this, today on the podcast, and uh, I thank you, and I look forward to seeing you the next time I stumble by the lo- the law school. Please know that you can find all editions of the BU Law Law School podcast on the Legal Talk Network, the BU Law website, as well as in iTunes. Many thanks to Mike, Kate, and Luann. Everybody here at the Legal Talk Network does such a fantastic job. I'm David Yaz. Thanks for listening, and have a great day, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.